Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash marketplace, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash marketplace now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash marketplace. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. Friday, a couple of weeks into the new year. Let's see where things stand, shall we? From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kyle Rizal. It is Friday today, the 12th day of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. In no particular order, it is going to be inflation, consumers, the Fed, the Fed and the politics of this economy, and then the straight-up politics of this economy, plus whatever we think of on the fly in the next seven minutes. Kate Davidson's at Bloomberg. Gina Smilek's at the New York Times. Hey, you two. Hey, Kai. Hey, Kai. Kate, let me start with you uh, and inflation. So I guess we are doing it in that order. Um, Consumer price index came out this week. Producer price index came out uh, today. We'll talk about both of those later with Kimberly Adams. But generally speaking, inflation seems to be getting a little bit sticky. And I wonder what you make of that. Yeah, so we certainly saw that uh, the CPI report, which is the big one that I think that most people focus on and are aware of, uh, accelerated last month. You know, it was on the decline mm-hmm. for much of 2023. It, you know, it, what to make of this? It was largely in line with what forecasters expected. You know, the the boost was kind of due to stubborn services costs, things like housing and car insurance. So to your point, yeah, a little bit sticky. I think that Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, she tends to be more hawkish and sort of wary mm-hmm. of, of these stubborn price pressures. She sort of summed it up as like, this doesn't necessarily suggest that there's some reacceleration in inflation, but it definitely underscores that the Fed's work isn't done, right? They still have to kind of wring out some of these price pressures in the economy. So if we think about what Chair Jay Powell has said, like the path is going to be bumpy. So this mm-hmm. was a bump for sure. PPI, um, which is producer prices, a little bit better. Um, it decreased for a third straight month. So that you know just prompted investors to kind of boost bets on the Fed cutting interest rates sooner rather than later despite their repeated attempts to say, no, 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 we're not in a rush here. That's so interesting. Gina Smilek discussed that a little bit, the last bit of what Kate said right there, that Fed, you know, markets are now saying, yeah, Fed's going to keep on cutting. I think Jay Powell looks at this and goes, I don't know. 
Yeah, you know, I think it's probably actually a bit of an open question at this stage. I mean, it's important to note that for this report, which, as Kate mentioned, was kind of in line. I mean, like, I don't think this was a huge surprise to anybody at the Fed. Um, And so I think even before this report came out, I think we were a lot of pushback on this narrative that had had developed in markets, which was that, oh, my gosh, they're definitely going to cut in March. You know, and I think Fed officials were very clearly trying to tell investors that they had gotten out over their skis. They were feeling way too confident about that. And they weren't even confidently ready to say that they were done raising rates yet, let alone guarantee they were going to be cutting rates in March. And so I think we're at this juncture where like a lot of things can happen between now and that Mm -hmm, March meeting. mm -hmm. You know, I think we're expecting a pretty soft print on their preferred inflation index, the personal consumption expenditures gauge. That could be a really soft print. We could get a soft print on that number before we have that meeting. You know, things could happen. Um, That said, you know, I think it's it's pretty clear that the Fed does not want to commit to cutting at that meeting and and in, in some ways wants to sort of, you know, tamp down expectations for that move. Right, right. Uh, um, uh, Kate, can we talk to talk about um, consumers for a second? The New York Fed uh, was out with its survey of consumer expectations this week. Generally speaking, uh, regarding inflation, consumers are feeling all right. Generally, in in the vibe sense, they're feeling okay. That's that's a positive change. Yeah, I mean, if you look at other measures of consumer sentiment, University of Michigan, for example, the Conference Board, um, other other people that track these things, it's been looking kind of you know, dour. If you mm-hmm. compare it to the economic data, right, it seems like things are fairly sturdy. And that's been such a big question. Why are consumers feeling so lousy? But then we had this report on Monday, which was, um, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty good. It was your head inflation expectations dropped to the lowest level since January of 2021. Um, and um, that's you know, largely reflected a pullback in expectations for inflation for food and rent, um, uh, expectations for gas prices stabilized. That's all good. Um, but but um, people who responded to the survey were also more upbeat about the jobs market. Yeah. They said they expected looser credit conditions. So these are kind of not things that you would expect to see among, uh, you know, Americans who are bracing for recession, for example, right? right? It clearly suggests that they're feeling they're feeling pretty good. So I guess the question, um, you know, maybe it makes a little bit more sense if you look at things like consumer spending, which has been so strong. That's been a bit of a puzzle. If people feel so bad, why are they still spending money? But this maybe helps to explain it a little bit yeah. more. Yeah, no, I think it does. Uh, okay, Gina, um, the the Federal Reserve, as you wrote in the paper this week, and as observers of past uh, elections and candidates will know, the Fed is about to become a political football this year because it's going to, we believe, start cutting rates, uh, and that will engender some some um, um, politicking around it. And and I guess I wonder what you think we're in for. Yeah, so I think it's actually kind of an open question, which is what makes this so interesting. So back in 2016, rewinding the clock a bit, President Donald Trump, before he was president, when he was just candidate Trump, was pretty frequently criticizing the Fed for keeping rates too low. Mm -hmm. He was saying that Janet Yellen, who was the Fed chair at the time, was being super political because keeping rates near zero and it was going to help out the Democrats because they were incumbent. And so that was very much his sort of line going into the election. And then he won and he almost immediately flipped around and said, you know what, rates are (laughs) going up and I'm happy about that. Rates should go back down and this is, you know, like it's bad and we should cut rates. And so I think it's really going to be very interesting interesting to watch this election because currently he's saying that mortgage rates are too high, mortgage rates are painfully high, but I think you could see a world where when rate cuts start that he he paints that as a political move. Uh, 
not clear that that is going to happen. He hasn't done it yet, but I think it's something interesting to watch just based on the precedent of that 2016 election. So it should be make for an exciting uh, campaign race for all of us uh, Fed reporters out here. Get a load of that. Exciting campaign for Fed reporters. Um, Kate, <laughs> um, uh, there may or may not be a government shutdown. We don't know. Uh, let's let's stipulate that shutdowns are bad in and of themselves. They get really bad uh, when they go long. Right now, though, I think we're still in the separating from the signal from the noise phase. Yes. Yes, it seems like the chances that some agencies will shut down a week from from um, tomorrow lessened a little bit today. Um, yeah. Speaker Johnson, you know, suggested he's not going to back off of um, these agreements that he's that he's struck on on spending levels. So probably what Congress is going to have to do is pass another temporary spending patch. I think that Johnson, you know, there's some political risks for him there, like we've seen with with previous Republican speakers. You know, members of his caucus don't want him to make any sort of deal. Um, but I think that it seems like there's a little bit more hope that something will come together. And as you said, I mean, I think that these shutdowns, they're often short. They don't often have a very big impact. And then the spending is made up later. It's not like it just goes away. It's right. just kind of pushed back. So I don't think that there's an expectation right now that there'll be a, a huge impact on the economy. Dysfunctional as always, or Congress is with this economy, right, Kate? I mean, that's kind of the deal. Same old, same old. Right. <laughs> right. Same old, same old. Kate Davidson of Bloomberg and Gina Smilik at the New York Times on this Friday. Thanks, you too. Thanks, Kai. Thank you. Have a nice weekend. On Wall Street today, a little of this, a little of that. Details, numbers, you all know the drill. All right, Gina and Kate and I were talking about this a minute ago, the ways you can measure inflation in this economy. You've got a couple of options, statistics and data-wise, most specifically, not anecdotally. There is the Fed's favorite, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, PCE in the vernacular. That doesn't come out for a couple of weeks yet. The Consumer Price Index was out this week. Inflation at the consumer level went up month to month. Also, the Producer Price Index, which came out this morning, as Kate said, inflation at the wholesale level down month to month. So, how to read and reconcile those seemingly divergent indicators. Here's Marketplace's Kimberly Adams. It's actually not so weird that the consumer price index goes up while the producer price index goes down. After all, says Cassie Happy, an analyst at WalletHub, they measure different things. So with a box of cereal, CPI would be telling you how much you paid for that box of cereal. PPI would be telling you what was spent to produce the good. It might seem that the prices producers are selling for should more or less line up with what consumers are paying. But while they make somewhat similar trends over time, they can diverge quite a bit. Patrick Horan is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. The producer price index includes things like what employers or the government pay for health care, which CPI does not. The consumer price index includes things like certain housing estimates, which PPI does not. And a big part of why we're seeing CPI inflation continue to be high is because of the fact that it's influenced by shelter inflation. It's not popping up in PPI. 
Economists like to look at the producer price index to get a sense of what's coming. Catherine Ann Edwards is an independent researcher and an adjunct economist at the Rand Corporation. Producers tend to sell their goods before consumers buy them, right? So you would think of producer price indices as being slightly leading over consumer price indices. Edwards says these latest PPI numbers are a good sign. Because, you know, typically a good that's measured, say, in the December producer index might be purchased, say, January through March of the consumer index. So if producers are spending less now to, well, produce something, in theory, that means prices could be lower for consumers in the future, if that's how companies decide to use those savings. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. Mean Girls, the movie based on the Broadway musical, based on the movie, is out in theaters today. The educators, Tina Fey and Tim Meadows, are back in their original roles. The high schoolers, including the Mean Girls, are mostly not. The remake joins what's been referred to as the Mean Girls universe, another example of how Hollywood just does not like to let any grass tall grow on successful intellectual property, even if it's made of plastic. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes explains. Mean Girls has always been one of my go-to comfort movies. It all feels so familiar. The high school hierarchy, the mathletes, the cafeteria conversations with the popular girls, a.k.a. the plastics. Oh my God, I love your bracelet. Where did you get it? Oh, my mom made it for me. It's adorable. Oh, it's so fetch. What is fetch? Oh, it's like slang from England. The original is now 20 years old, and this is a chance for Hollywood to make money by presenting an old story to a new audience. Not just people who remember the social roller coaster of high school, but people who are living through it. Sam Adams writes about film for Slate and says his 14-year-old daughter asked to go see the movie with her friends. They just got through middle school, so they could tell you a whole lot about Mean Girls with small m, small g. Adams says they've seen the original, and they know one of the new stars, Renee Rapp, from TikTok. She plays Regina George in the new musical version of the movie. The film industry has a long tradition of revisiting ideas that worked before, even if some of the remakes and sequels end up being relegated to the burn book. But Adam says this isn't just part of what Hollywood does now. It's pretty much everything that Hollywood does now. The concern is that it does kind of chase away, squeeze out more original stories. At the Senator Theater in Baltimore, owner Kathleen Lyons says there is some audience fatigue with movies that rely on old IP. Still, they have gotten calls from people who are planning to dress up for Mean Girls. Maybe wear pink, even if it's not a Wednesday. So we have a lot of these college-age kids that are definitely interested in the movie, as well as sort of like some mother-daughter date things happening. Lyon says they're not doing any special promotions to get people in, and instead will leave that to happen organically. In the words of Regina George, you can't make fetch happen. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace.
Coming up. Flag football, you know, honestly, it's a brilliant idea. Is there a but there? Because I kind of hear one coming. First, though, let's do the numbers. Down Dust rolls off 118 points today, 3 tenths percent, 37,592. The NASDAQ nudged up two points, we'll call that flat, 14,972. S&P 500 up three, also flat, 47 and 83 there. For the five days gone by, the Dow gained just a tad, three tenths of 1%. The NASDAQ increased 3%. The S&P 500 up about 1.8%. Some of the country's biggest banks posted earnings reports today. Annual bank profits were up an average, an average, I don't even know what that is, an average of 11% for those that reported despite some fourth quarter losses. Remember Silicon Valley and signature bank crises last year? Banks mostly footed the bill that helped the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation deal with the fallout from that. We talked about that. Anyway, in the markets. Bank of America shares down 1%. Citigroup jumped 1%. Wells Fargo down 3 and 3 tenths of 1% today. Bond prices were up. The yield on the 10-year T-note fell to 3.95%. And you are listening to Marketplace. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash marketplace, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash marketplace now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. For a very brief minute this weekend, the American election cycle is going to drop down just a little bit in the headlines. Taiwan holds elections for a new president and legislature tomorrow, balloting that will have outsized geopolitical importance from the outside. Anyway, in Taiwan, though, a lot of voters, young ones in particular, are prioritizing other things, as Marketplace's Jennifer Pack reports now from Taipei. On a sunny day, the governing Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, holds a political rally in central Taipei. Dozens of people trickle to the stage as the DPP's campaign song plays. An elderly man with a purple balloon is dancing. He runs on the spot, strikes a pose, shuffles to the side, strikes another pose. People at the rally are certainly young at heart, but not young. So for the voice of youth, I head to the trendy shopping district of Ximending, where I meet Zheng Yuya. She's 25, and she says she hasn't been paying attention to the election campaign, but says she might still vote. I'll likely vote for the candidate who talks about improving the economy and increasing salaries. Because, she says, the cost of living is always going up. This lunch spot I go to used to charge $1.60 for a bento box, but over the last two years, it's gone up by 40% to over $2. Down the street, about a dozen members of an opposition party, the Taiwan People's Party, belt out a campaign song. A volunteer holds up a poster in front of us. It says Taiwan should be prepared for a war, but shouldn't provoke one. Young people here are worried about the prospects of a war with China, but they say bread and butter issues are just as important. We speak to a chef who will only give his surname, Lan. The service sector pays people far too little. The salary for high-tech workers is much higher. 
the gap between the rich and poor is growing. More and more people can't afford to rent. I hope the new president will build some more social housing. Guo Jinghan wants to know what the next president might do for the tech sector. He says some tech firms in Taiwan have already cut staff, or they're on a hiring freeze. In part because U.S.-China tensions have meant fewer orders. When the U.S. imposes chip sanctions on mainland China, our exports to China diminish. Less work means fewer staff. His girlfriend Lina Sun still hasn't decided how to vote. She says, "Sure, there are differences between the parties, but they're not making their positions clear on the big issues." I think many candidates have avoided the topic of Taiwan cutting ties with mainland China. The main opposition party, the Kuomintang, is seen as pro-Beijing, but even it isn't calling for unification with China. College student Lin Changming longs to hear substance from the candidates. Most party candidates aren't talking about how their platforms can improve Taiwan. Instead, they're yelling about how bad the other parties and their candidates are. Chan Shuqing is majoring in logistics. She wishes politicians would do more for students who are struggling. Some parents help with school fees. That's not easy for them. So we need to find our own pocket money. I want to concentrate on my studies, but instead I end up studying and working at the same time. It's exhausting being a student. So exhausting, in fact, she hasn't been following the election news. Perhaps she'll vote, she says, if she has the day off from work. In Taipei, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace. On paper, anyway, baseball is the American pastime. But if we're looking just at television ratings, which can be read to mean, among other things, money and cultural impact, it is far and away football that Americans are tuning into. Of the 20 most watched television broadcasts of 2023, 19 of them were football games. At the same time, though, participation in youth football—that is, kids signing up to actually play the game. Is having a very different moment. After tackle football made headlines in the 2010s for concussions and other brain injuries, not a few parents started saying they will just pass. Dave Shine did some diving into the data for the Washington Post in a series the paper's doing called "The Divided States of Football." Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Could you do a little compare and contrast, a little before and after, uh, with with Pop Warner slash Little League football participation before? CTE and concussions became a thing, and and now these days, yeah, basically participation in youth and high school football has dropped almost every year since the CTE crisis arrived. So we're talking twelve, thirteen years now,、mm-hmm. and basically high school participation and and youth football participation are both down in the vicinity of of ten to fifteen percent、uh, in that time. So. Um, in terms of high school football players, we're talking about perhaps a hundred thousand fewer players now than there were twelve, fifteen years ago. And we should say, and this is kind of the point of the series that the, that you and the Post are doing, it is uneven nationally, right? It's not that's not uniform across the board in every state. Yeah, that's what we found. So the fifteen percent figure、um, is is you know across the country,、mm-hmm. but there are certain states, certain regions. Certain pockets, and most importantly, 
certain demographics where uh, participation has fallen at a much steeper rate. List out a couple of them for me. Honestly, the, the most fascinating one to me was in terms of conservative and liberal split or a political divide. It's obviously not as quantifiable um, as some of the other uh, demographics because, you know, the kids who play those sports are not being asked to identify right. as that. But we're fortunate enough at the Post to have a, a fantastic polling department of our own. And they had done a poll in 2012 that asked uh, participants uh, their views on tackle football for kids. You know, back in 2012, the divide between conservatives and liberals was pretty small. It was um, something like 65% of conservatives recommended football mm -hmm. for kids and 61% of liberals. Don't, don't, don't hold me to those numbers, yeah, but it was yeah. something like that. And in 2023, that gap had widened to 75% of conservatives would recommend football mm. and only 44% of liberals. So the gap went from, you know, five or seven percentage points to right. up to 30 plus. Politics is everywhere, man. So, so look, the, the, the business analogy here is that football has a supply chain problem, right? Yeah. Um, well, they would have, um, if not for the sort of marketing strategy of hmm. sorts by the NFL to embrace flag football. So right. you create an alternate pipeline. You also expand your footprint uh, among girls and women right. um, into the sport that way. And even if they don't translate or, or graduate, I suppose, up to tackle football when they age out of flag, You've created, you know, a, a pipeline of athletes, but but also a pipeline of fans. We should be clear here. It's not like I don't even know what Super Bowl number we're on. Fifty five, fifty six. <laughs> I, I don't even know. But but Super Bowl seventy five when we get there is not going to be a flag football game, right? That's not what you're saying. You know, I, I don't think so. No, <laughs> um, I, but but I will say that the NFL very pointedly has been saying for some time now that the future of football is flag. And that that's a direct mm. quote from Troy Vincent, who is the executive vice president, I believe, of football operations for the NFL. So they, they are in some ways setting the stage, I suppose, for somewhere way, way, way down the line, yeah. a, a transfer to, to flag football as the base model. I mean, you got to innovate, right? And football is, if nothing else, in fact, mostly, uh, it's a business. That's exactly right. The fall off in participation in tackle football, uh, that was considered to be somewhat of an existential crisis for the game. Um, and flag football, you know, honestly, it's a brilliant idea. Uh, mm -hmm. The critical thing, of course, is going to be transferring those kids out of flag and into tackle right. when they age up. And we don't have enough data at this point to, to know how that's going. Dave Shannon at the Washington Post, uh, the paper series on football and the changes that are coming into it uh, is called Divided States of Football. Dave, thanks a lot. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. This final note on the way out today, I hate to end the week on a downer, but Citigroup announced a chunky fourth quarter loss today, almost $2 billion. The bank also said it's going to lay off 20,000 people, about 10% of its workforce. Shares up 1% today. 
Our theme music was composed by B.J. Lederman. Marketplace's executive producer is Nancy Fargali. Donna Tam is the executive editor. Neil Scarborough is the vice president and general manager. And I'm Kai Rizdal. Have a great weekend, everybody. We will see you back here on Monday, all right? This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.